In a world where it seems totally normal to listen to a podcast about the Toronto Argonauts, it's the X's and Argos podcast. Welcome to the X's and Argos scouting report. My name is Ben Grant. This week, it is the Mark's Labor Day Classic, and we've got that matchup we all wait for every year, your Toronto Argonauts against the evil Hamilton Tiger Cats. And of course, <laughs> for the occasion, I have brought in none other than CFL on TSN play-by-play voice, Marshall Ferguson, to help us break down the Tiger Cats. Marshall, how you doing? Do I get that title if I've only done one game over the course of two months of the CFL season? I guess, right? I mean, it's, there's so it's well, there's so many things we could call you. You you know, you've got uh, so many things on the go. But I think you know the the thing I'm most proud of for you in the most uh, you know recent weeks is the CFL on TSN play by play. I thought you did a fantastic job calling the game at Ottawa. So really happy to have you here. And again, congratulations! Uh, you're you're doing such great uh, such great work as you continue to do. No, thank you. I appreciate it. And thank you to everybody uh, from your Argos community and the CFL community at large who was supportive on that night. Like there was a lot of things that I wish I could do better at, but the good news is that they uh, decided to not fire me after day one. I didn't swear on live television and uh, that means that I get another opportunity and um, my only two games that I have scheduled as of right now moving forward are uh, September 24th, Montreal at Toronto at BMO Field on a Friday night at 7.30. And then October 6th, Ottawa at Toronto. That's the Wednesday night game we got. So I got two Argos games and I was talking to Nick Arbuckle this week and he said that he appreciated the difference in play-by-play and that it was nice to have, you know, kind of a, a player's vision up there and calling the game the way that he kind of saw some stuff uh, because he was watching the game live. And uh, that meant a lot to me to have somebody who knows what they're talking about and is living their career in the middle of it be like, hey, I kind of like this, which was... Uh, really, really rewarding as well. So I'm excited to do some Argos games because I think they're a really strong team and they're going to have a really nice season the way things look through the first month. And and that rare Wednesday that uh, that uh, we get to do, which is is going to be fun. But it, like like uh, Nick was saying, like it's such an unusual thing to have a quarterback doing play by play color commentary for sure. But there yeah. you are, a quarterback with all sorts of knowledge and experience. And you're in there doing the play-by-play, and then and then to to have Ford next to you, like it's such a a wealth of knowledge in the booth. It's it's pretty spectacular. The most difficult thing, and it's nice that neither of us have an ego, but the most difficult thing is not stepping on each other because we just want to talk about everything that we see. And I think that was kind of the energy that we felt after the first quarter because the first quarter was a very much a feeling out process, and I didn't want to overstep out anything I was doing, so I was really reserved and kind of timid and stiff, and then. Got more comfortable as the game went on and uh, to be able to talk with Dwayne about things, it didn't hit me until I was in the car driving back to Hamilton from Ottawa, but I realized as I'm driving back, I've been watching that show, right? If you want to call it that, the CFL and TSN, I've been watching that show since its its original broadcast date. I've been watching the CFL on CBC way back with Mark Lee and Chris Walby and uh, Don Whitman and all of those names. I'm like, I... I just lived the inside of the show that I've been watching every week for years. And, and it didn't even hit me until I was done the game. And I'm like, man, that is such a blessing to get an opportunity to live inside the television that you've been watching for so long. So I hope that I continue to get better at it and they have no choice but to keep me around. And then uh, we can expand it, see where it goes, have lots of fun. And, and bring some different things to the booth because I think everybody likes a little change of pace once in a while. And maybe I'll become more of a traditional guy as time goes on. Maybe I'll become more adventurous and outside the box. Who knows? But I'd like to find out. 
And you were a little bit, uh, well, it was a sort of a self-deprecating segment, but for viewers and listeners, if you didn't catch Marshmallow, Monday's edition, uh, there's a fantastic <laughs> segment of Marshall's picked out his five, either, I guess, I don't know, most embarrassing worst, moments, worst. I suppose, uh, as you reflected on the game. And, and honestly, I think, you know, if... If those are your five, I think you're in a pretty good place. They, you know, they they weren't they weren't catastrophic. You know, there was maybe one that was just a little. Ooh, I wish I'd had that back. Oh, but but boy, they, do they I were ever. funny stories, and you told it so well. So if you hadn't had a chance to listen to Marshmallow from Monday, make sure you catch that. That's a fantastic segment, and you could feel Kyle like sympathizing as he was. You know, he was so invested into it. As he was we all pulling were. for me, man. He was pulling for me the whole night. He was texting me throughout the night, and I wasn't you know responding to much throughout the evening until the game was done. But um, yeah, it was that collective uh i think poll from people that <laughs> it, it honestly it takes me back to my time in radio where i remember i got the tie cats play-by-play job and i had done it for two three years and i went to my boss mike neighbors who's the stadium announcer uh in hamilton at tim hortons field and big booming voice and an amazing person and i said to him hey, am i am i doing play-by-play again this year because i haven't really heard back from anybody i haven't talked to the tie cats yet or anything and he goes, yeah, we had the conversation the other day and, and I'm waiting for him to be like, and you know, they want to try something different or go in a different direction. And, and he goes, and um, basically the Ticats came back to us and they said, you know, we don't know why, but we don't get a lot of negative feedback on Marshall. Like people don't, they don't passionately love him. It's not that he's the greatest thing that's ever happened to the sport, but they're like, we just don't get the usual amount of hate mail. Uh, when he calls our games <laughs> and I was like, Hey, I'll take that. I'll take that every single day of the week. If people are just not angry at me, if I'm just an agreeable person that you enjoy listening to on broadcast, I'm like, that's a win. So, uh, yeah, anyways, it, it was very, very fun. And I'm very thankful for the opportunity, but I'm also excited to move forward in the season. And I, I mean, this Labor Day stuff that's coming up here, Ben, as you know, is it's a collision course, especially after what Hamilton showed a little bit of in Montreal. Because I don't think they were perfect by any stretch, but they they certainly showed they're more of the team we thought they would be than at the start of the year. And Argonauts fans weren't quite sure what to do going into that game, because I don't think many Argos fans wanted to go into Labor Day against an 0-3 Ticats team. There was something right. terrifying about that. So I think there was a pretty large faction of, of Argos fans who were actually uh, cheering for the Ticats is probably too strong, but uh, they were, they, they kind of, I think in the back of their minds, wanted Hamilton to win a game because we've seen some of those Labor Day games in the past where in seasons where Hamilton could even be winless in Labor Day and, you know, go out and beat the Argos uh, at home. So uh, I think there was a little bit of that. And the truth is, Argos fans don't really know what to make of this Ticats team. And I, I think at this point, they're probably more afraid of the defense than they are of the offense. Would you think, is that a, a fair way to, to look at the, the Tiger Cats? Yeah, I think so. As of this point, because if you think about what we believed Hamilton would be coming into the year, it was brash up and down the field, five different receivers you could throw the ball to. It was like, well, if you cover Ackland, they're just going to go to Speedy. Well, Speedy's the you know former MOP in 2019, but Braylon Addison might actually have a better receiver skill set than Brandon Banks at this point in his career. And he runs such great routes and he has such great chemistry with either of the quarterbacks and Dane Evans or Jeremiah Masoli. And then it was like, well, Devere Posey's coming in and you've got Unger and the Canadians mixing it up on the wide side. But it's like, man, there's going to be like four or five really good options for them to throw to. And then you start to get into the year and it's like, well, Ackland makes that nice grab on the first touchdown drive of the year in Winnipeg. And after that, the Ticats that we thought we were going to get basically evaporate for the next two games and don't show any signs of life, can't move the ball and can't protect. And 
I think the reason that people feel more comfortable going against the Ticats offense than they do the Ticats defense is that, yeah, on defense, you had Tunde Delicato for a couple of weeks. Ted Laurent was down, back up, maybe still banged up, not feeling great. Dylan Wynn was out for a game. Delvin Bros retired. Rico Murray's been out. Like, it's like all of those things, I think, added up in one big ball of, oh, this team is different than we thought they were going to be. Right after that game week one, I started to reassess because people are asking me, oh my God, what's happening? Are the Ticats broken? I'm like, no, the Ticats just aren't who you thought the Ticats were going to be. Like you had an assumption of who they were going to become and they're not that. So the offense right now doesn't scare anybody. Even with Dane Evans coming in and playing, I thought pretty good. I give his performance, you know, like a six and a half or a seven out of 10. There's still lots of potential there, but he played pretty good, but it didn't show that every down killer instinct, run the ball on you, protect the quarterback. They've got issues. They've got things that they're working on right now. And uh, and I don't think that's shocked to anybody who's watched them play, but the defense, Seante Evans is starting to come into his own. Simone's flying around a little bit. Santos Knox is getting sideline to sideline, kind of looking a little bit like Larry Dean back in 2000 and whatever it was, 16, 17, when he was there and had those really successful years with tackles. So, um, yeah, I agree with your sentiment for sure. I think the defense is ahead of the offense and the Ticats like it is on many teams right now across the league. Yeah, for sure. And and we've seen this more than usual this year because of the lack of preseason games. With The Argos have put together a pretty good running game in each of the last two games against the Bombers, yeah. but it's hard to gauge because they, could, they didn't run the ball that well in Calgary. And so it's hard to gauge whether or not this is a Bombers flaw or an Argos strength. It, do you see, like, if if the Argos are able to generate some steady offense, do you feel it's going to come through the air or on the ground? Where are you thinking that uh, that's going to hit the Ticats? Yeah, it's interesting. It's a, it's a great question because my first instinct is, well, the front of the Hamilton Tiger Cats is beat up and young and learning. And so I would expect that it would be on the ground. But at the same time, I'm thinking, well, like Santos knocks in between the tackles is not afraid to get his nose dirty. Simone's going to be all up in there. And But then you start thinking, but well, Adam Big Hill was in there and it didn't make a difference in those games against Winnipeg. So I don't think it's necessarily the personnel that are in place that you can make your determination off of this. I prefer to look at it from the view of what is Toronto just better at at this point. And as good as they are at throwing the ball around and spreading it to all the different receivers, they ran the ball against Winnipeg where Winnipeg, you you saw it in the Calgary game where Willie Jefferson comes off the ball he can go through Yukonbra Williams if he wants to. He can go around him. He can spin move him. He can knock down passes. Willie Jefferson can do everything. And yet against Toronto, he didn't do much, especially in the run game. Like he wasn't really a threat. And these are not in, in Winnipeg. I think there's this misnomer that, well, they're great pass rushers. Therefore, they don't do everything else the way they should. These are not your reckless Sean Lemon fly up the field defensive ends and not give a damn about contain or fighting back to the football if it's a running play, any of that. Those guys are responsible because Richie Hall demands that from his system in Winnipeg. So now I'm thinking, well, it's I think it's the ground game. I think that Toronto is a much better running football team than we realize. And if you really think about it, like Bo is the star and quarterbacks drive everything in the league. But in Calgary, when Dinwiddie was a part of that, there were moments where whoever it was at running back, because you know, Ben, they had a bunch of different names rolling through there. They were a really good running team. And by good, I don't mean that they were putting up 100-plus yards consistently. It was the fact that when they needed it, and you go back and watch that that great cup in Edmonton from 2018, when they needed to get a rush on second and six, second and seven, they'd hand it off inside and go pin, pull, second level, get to the free. It's like 
there was nobody that could make the play because they were so well coached. And I think Dinwiddie brought that over with him where we think a quarterback who is signing his former quarterback, who's getting a bunch of his former receivers and putting them together and they're going to know the system and they're going to throw it up and down the field. In the last two games, they've been like, well, a big part of the system of what we actually did in Calgary was rely on the running game and we've got good bodies up front to be able to move people. So uh, I think the ground game is is the more fearful thing right now for Hamilton going into this because I do think Toronto will get production. The fact they did it with two different backs, the fact that I didn't know who the hell DJ Foster was going into that game in week three, and now I think he has great burst and I feel like I have an understanding of what he is. They've got depth, they've got talent, and they've got a system that's designed to be able to run the football effectively. So I think that's that's got to be concerning to Hamilton at this point. And it's interesting to see like how you, know, you talk about how what Coach Dinwiddie sort of prioritizes and why him um, appreciating the run so much isn't necessarily a surprise. You also see it in the way that the personnel has been deployed because you look at like uh, Dejan Allen, for example, Peter Nicastro, they haven't yeah. been great in pass protection so far. I think they've been um, they've maybe uh, not performed to the level that people were hoping in, in pass protection, but they've consistently been the two best run blockers on that Argos line. And that's the reason that they're both still out there. And that obviously they're, they're still playing well enough in pass protection too, but they really bring something in the run game. And that's something that when you look at Foster's big runs and you, and you look at White's big runs from the week before, it's, it's often those two guys that are, that are mixing it up in the ground game. And Coach Dinwiddie clearly appreciates that and, and requires that as a part of his offense. Yeah, and he is, I think people believe that he came in with an idea of wanting to set a tone, Dinwiddie, as a, as a head coach and really show what he could do. This, he has made this not about himself from the very first second of being the Argonauts head coach. So there's no, I don't think there's an ego or a want to be known for anything. He's just interested in winning. That's all he cares. It's the short answers at halftime. It's the way that he talks about the talent on the team and trying to get them ready and moving on to the next game and all these things. The way that he speaks is as somebody who has been a head coach for five years or more, not somebody who's getting their first opportunity in pro football. So I think that his lack of ego has allowed him to just say, what are we best at right now? And when you get into the third quarter and it's a close game against Winnipeg and they're trying to fight their way back in and he's like, you know what, he'd probably love to throw the football and get a couple of touchdowns and then sail home in the fourth quarter. But they're running the ball effectively. That's fine. Let's grind this thing out. It's working. Let's keep going. So he's not a, a prisoner of the moment and, and ego doesn't get in the way. I think that he understands the flow of the game at a really high level and that allows him to be able to call the game almost unconsciously where it's, I don't have to go to my play sheet and say, oh, I really wanted to get this in this week. He doesn't give a damn. He's like, well, we ran this previously and it went for eight on first down. I'd love to have eight yards on first down again. We're getting a similar look. Guess what I'm going to call? So I like the way that he's approaching the game so far. Yeah, he's been super impressive. He was one of the question marks I had coming into the year. He and Arbuckle were basically the only two people who were unproven, I guess, aside from Nicastro and and Allen, I suppose. Um, But, you know, those are pretty big spots, head coach and quarterback. But yeah, they've both been awesome. And just watching Dinwiddie in that second game against Winnipeg, the way that he that he sort of saw that Winnipeg was committing to essentially play cover one. That was what they were going to do, take Nick Arbuckle's reads away from him. And Dinwiddie's response is, okay, that's fine. Then I'm going to move your guys all over the place, take all your backers out of the backfield by using two different backs. And, uh, and then we're going to end up, you know, running 
running straight at you where you've got halfbacks uh, as linebackers instead of linebackers who are out at the corners. So it was just sort of cool to see him manipulate Winnipeg's defense once they kind of committed to to going to man coverage. And I thought, you know, that's 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 good coaching. And I've been impressed with him from from the word go. So let's get back to where we've gone off on like three different tangents here, but let's get back to the, the Ticats Argos <laughs> game. Um, yes. Let's talk a bit about Brandon Banks. What's happened yep. here? Because that's a, another thing that's making Argos fans nervous is that, you know, there's not a lot of thought that, you know, he's just gone away. That's it. You know, he's he's too old. And that's that's the last we're going to see of Brandon Banks. But but where has he been over three weeks? I think we're 15 catches, 112 yards, hasn't found the end zone yet. What's what's going on there? Yeah, so I haven't done a, a deep dive on this as I would like to. I probably will, honestly, going into uh, the weekend in the game on Monday because I'll, I'll put that up on CF Perspective once I kind of look into last year's targets and, or 2019 target, this year's targets and find out how he's being used, the way they're trying to get it to him and all the rest. But from what I've seen thus far, I think he was banged up through the first couple of games, which obviously is an overly simplistic answer. But I mean, he was grabbing for his midsection a bunch of times and it just looked like he was uncomfortable and had something going on there, which... Uh, I don't think that that hindered him a great deal, but it just looked like he was fighting something other than the defense on a play in play out basis. In terms of the throws he's getting, it seems like he was. There's some of these throws the Ticats made when I was doing radio and play by play for these games where you would consistently see like a scissors route and Speedy would be the one who was skinny to the post and he would catch it at full speed and take it to the house. They tried to make that throw to him this past week. And Dane Evans threw it too flat when there was no free safety over the top. And he could have just thrown it with a a massive amount of arc and let Speedy run underneath it and catch it like a punt and walk into the end zone. And he tries to throw it sharp and they miss it. Well, like that that's a play that they hit on in 2019 when they were in Montreal. They called it, they got a similar look on defense and they didn't execute. So when you look at the stat total, I think that's the story behind it. There's a lot of similar things that they are calling so far this year that he's had success on in the past that they're just not, I mean, he hasn't even popped a quick screen yet, Ben. Like the smoke screens that they throw it to him and they get Revenberg out in front, he goes and gets the corner and then the slot back gets to the free safety and he basically just has to make one linebacker miss and he's down the sideline for a score. He hasn't popped one more than five, six yards at this point in terms of yards after the catch. Some of the throws from Masoli were off balance and trying to target. I mean, the one that jumped out to me was Jeremiah, when he got intercepted by Willie Jefferson, he's locked on to Speedy running a crossing route he doesn't even see Jefferson. He throws it right into his, I mean, granted, Willie Jefferson's stomach is where my head is, but he throws it right into to Willie's stomach. And it's because it's like he sees Brandon coming, the route progression has led him to that place. And he was just kind of blind to it. And I think that there, there might be a little element of locking on to Speedy that's unhealthy because I don't think Speedy is someone you have to force the ball to. I think his touches and his production come about pretty organically in, in the right situation. But Tommy Condell was also down on the field in week number four, which I thought was interesting because I don't think I've ever seen him down on the field. He's always been in the booth, and that might have just been a Montreal thing. That might have been a communication problem, a headset problem. I'm not sure, but for him to be down there it was probably a bit more of a, a human personal side where he can talk right directly to Speedy and say, what do you what do you like? What do you want here? What does Dane throw to you well? Uh, and, and I think that's how they're going to get back to having him be as productive as he should be because you might say, well, yeah, it's a little bit of time has passed and, you know, there's been time off and all these other extenuating circumstances. But the reality is there's still 12 players on the field. Brandon Banks still knows how to run routes. He knows how to get open and he understands what Condell wants to do. So 
he's always going to be dangerous. And at some point, he is going to have one of those eight catches, 120 yards, two touchdown games. But until we see it, kind of like how I felt about Edmonton's offense, until I see it, I'm not going to respect it. I'm not going to expect it from uh, from that that group. So they need to get him going. But the short answer, honestly, on Speedy to this point for me is that they're just not executing on the things they've had success with previously. They're trying. They're putting them in situations to have success, and they're just not finishing. I wonder how many of these problems tie into the issues that Hamilton has had on the offensive line, because that's something that you, uh, well, you know, just as well as anyone that can throw off your timing as a quarterback. Yeah. It, it doesn't maybe make logical sense, but it could even cause Dane Evans to, instead of throwing a floater, like you said, to really fire it in there because there's a little bit of, of nervousness, of uh, uncertainty with him in the pocket. And, you know, am I about to get hit here? But it also affects you as a play caller and those short screens that you talked about jailbreak and other things they don't work as well if the defense is pressing up if everyone's getting in closer because they know the pass rush is getting home more quickly than it might usually and is this is the Hamilton offensive line issue is that going to be something that's going to be going on all year do you know if bodies are coming back where are we in terms of protecting those two quarterbacks yeah to me it's the issue it is. I think everything, whether it's Masoli, Banks, all of that, it comes directly from the protection issues that they have had thus far. And, you know, in terms of the injury situation and guys that are coming back, I hope for their sake it's soon. But the reality is if they were going to make wholesale changes and find somebody different than Kaoka for at tackle, because it's no secret that he struggled a little bit, if you were going to end up finding uh, maybe a different center so you could move Sirocco back to his natural position at right guard. If you wanted to go and get an American right tackle um, off the street that you thought could be better than Murray at this point in the year, you probably would have done it already. The reality is, and I said this after the game must have been week two against Saskatchewan, because of the COVID protocols and the quarantining and all the rest, it, it, it was going to get worse before it got better. And Dane made some throws and Dane took some hits in that game in week four that were not pleasant. And I'm sure he would have been more accurate had he not had that pressure on, but he was able to weather the storm a little bit better than I think Masoli did under the similar circumstances, albeit Saskatchewan, Winnipeg's defense and pass rush significantly better, in my opinion, than Montreal, despite the fact that Armando Sewell is there and Nick Usher got some pressures and, uh, you know, Menard was good up the middle a couple of times, despite the fact he had a rough in the passer call. So, I like the way that Dane is able to kind of act like there's all these bullets flying around him and he doesn't really care that much. But yeah, I mean, at, at some point, the offensive line has to improve for them because if it doesn't, they're just not going to the Grey Cup. Like, it's as to me, it's as simple as that. And, you know, these next two games against Toronto are really going to bring that into focus because the, the Argos pass rush is so varied and exceptional and so many different body types that when I, I look at the grand scheme of things, like a 10,000 meter look at this, it's as simple as this. Toronto has a pass rush. Hamilton struggles on the offensive line. If you can't protect your quarterback, you're going to lose some games, whether it's this one this week, the rematch, the two other times they play this year in East Final. That's going to change home field and playoff seating. If you end up losing games directly because they're worth more, they get a win, you get a loss out of the same game. And if that ends up happening, I think Toronto wins two or three of the games against Hamilton this year based on what I've seen so far if Nick Arbuckle plays at a high enough level and if Hamilton continues to struggle on the offensive line. And if that happens and Toronto takes care of business in other places, 
then maybe they're the top team in the East going into the playoffs. Well, that changes home field advantage. Now Hamilton's got to go down the road. They don't get their home crowd and they have to fight their way through Toronto, through the noise, because as much as people want to talk about the Argos crowd, it is noisy. Even with 9,000 people, I was there week three to see Toronto Winnipeg. It was great crowd in terms of noise put it and in the playoffs. Obviously it'd be a lot more. If you have an offensive line that is still struggling at that point in the year, and now they got to go on the road and deal with the crowd noise. I don't think Hamilton's coming home to the great cup. And so that's what this really boils down to for me. And it's, it's just kind of like a domino effect of offensive line struggling that affects the season win total that affects the head to head that affects the home field that affects your chance to go to the great cup at home. So it, to me, it's, it's so difficult to change that because you have all these restrictions in place and scouting is more difficult. And uh, so I don't see it getting better real quick, but I also think that the tight cats have drafted offensive linemen very early at various points. And at some point we'll probably see Jesse given in a tackle at some point, Colter Woodman, he maybe gets a look at a guard or something like that. And, they've got a chance to take those developmental guys and give them real reps. I guess the question just becomes then, Ben, how quickly do they adapt to live game action? Are, are they making the right call with Dane Evans? Like, I, I know there's, I know Masoli was a, a little banged up, I guess, but like, if they're both healthy, who do you walk out there? Like, regardless of, and it's easy to say for me, but like, regardless of, of paycheck, yeah. who do you walk out there as the quarterback? Yeah, so this is, uh, just to answer your question right off the top, I think it's Dane. And the reason that I say that is, I've said my whole time in Hamilton, I feel like, not an expert necessarily on Jeremiah, but I feel very well versed. I was a fan of him when he was at Oregon, watched him in Ole Miss, saw him go to Edmonton. I remember the first training camp he was with Hamilton. I was coaching sports fitness school at McMaster University, and I was taking my kids over to watch the Ticats practice because they're like, oh my God, pro football players. And I'm just going because I wanted to watch Jeremiah because I'm like, oh my God, Jeremiah Masoli is a Hamilton Tiger Cat. So I feel like I understand his game and his evolution and journey pretty well. And this is the thing I always come back to with Jeremiah. When he's at his best, he's as good as any quarterback in the CFL. The creativity, imagination, playmaking, mix of run and pass, uh, making you, you know, the, the defense be on their heels, taking shots vertically. When he's accurate, when he's making smart decisions, when he's seeing the field, you can tell. And again, this is somebody who's called Ticats games for five years. You can tell in the first quarter if Jeremiah's on. And when he's on, whether it was Coach John Salavanis next to me, Mike Morielli, otherwise, there would be this look in the first quarter we would give each other and just go, yeah, this is Jeremiah is about to put 300 yards up and they're going to win the game. Like you just knew that game where they blew out the Argos at BMO a couple of years ago was a perfect example of that. He makes a couple of throws in the first quarter and we're just looking at each other going, the good Jeremiah showed up. This is going to be a beatdown. And sure enough, it was. Then you get the bad Jeremiah. And the bad Jeremiah is the one that you got after the first touchdown drive against Winnipeg in week one this year, where he's throwing it twice into people's bodies that are not wearing his color uniform. When bad Jeremiah is out there and he's not seeing the field cleanly and he's making these questionable throws or he's forcing the ball into places or he's feeling the pressure and he's rolling away or he's throwing off his back foot or he has these tendencies when he's not feeling it that day. And those drawbacks to his game are more likely to create turnovers than Dane Evans when he's having an off day. When Dane's having a bad day, it might be a little dull. The completion percentage might be a little bit lower. You won't get as many shot plays, but it's almost like Jeremiah's top is way up here and his bottom is way down here. And for Dane, his top is still way up here, but his bottom's not as low. 
like he doesn't have that same volatility and risk if you want to use you know a financial term for people in your stocks and investments he doesn't have that same downside i would say so i think dane it's not that he has more upside they have the same amount of upside they can both be incredible players i think that hamilton i'm not saying they're not going to play jeremiah again this year but they've come to realize that when Dane has an off day, it's it doesn't hurt you as much. And that's why I think when you start the season the way they have, you go to Dane and you see how long you can ride it and how many games you can win with them. And last question I have for you, and I thought that's that's a great answer to put it in, in perspective. And of course, Toronto's not unfamiliar with having two quarterbacks and not knowing exactly uh, how to approach <laughs> that. But uh, but that's, you know, that's sort of the, the CFL. I think that's a, it's a good position to be in, you know, for the Ticats, for the Argos to have two, and maybe for the Stampeders now, we'll see. But yeah. to have two guys that you have, you know, a degree of faith in and who have ceilings that are way up here. Uh, it, it's pretty exciting. And of course, there are way worse situations to be in. So, yeah. um, you know, I, I don't think if, you know, from a TACAT's point of view, I, I wouldn't be too concerned. I think, again, you've got two guys that are proven that you know can do it. So, um, you know, that's not something that I, I think would go on the list of worries. Now, last thing I want to talk about was the running game. I was happy mm-hmm. to see uh, Sean Thomas Arlington get into the end zone last week after everything that he's been through uh, and you know he actually had a pretty good day running the ball Hamilton in general ran the ball well last week but they hadn't in the first two weeks is yeah. that the result of being behind is that the result of just not being able to run the ball because of the score or is there something more there does this come back to the offensive line yeah I think they were chasing a little bit it's tough to say with the offensive line because they were giving up a lot of penetration as well on passing plays and and they just I don't think they could move bodies effectively against Saskatchewan and Winnipeg because like when you watch McKenna Henry play, it's like, how are you supposed to move him? And you're putting Darius Sirocco there, which again, I don't want to bemoan or demean what Darius Sirocco is to the Ticats. He's an important piece, a high draft pick, and he can move bodies, but it, there's just certain body types that I think he struggles with. Revenberg is a stud. I mean, Revenberg is every team would love to have him. If I'm building, you know, we did this on Canadian football perspective back in the in the late spring, early summer you're all Canadian roster, right? Of just the right. Canadian players. And Sean McCune was our center and Revenberg was our guard. Because if you're playing fantasy football, you're going, oh my goodness. And, and people that think that I just love Brandon Revenberg more than I should because he's a tie cat, I want you to go and just watch what Brandon Revenberg does on a play-by-play basis. He's not Quentin Nelson from the Indianapolis Colts, Ben. And you'll get that reference and maybe a couple of others. He's not that body type, but he has the same effect where you're watching, you're like, that's a win. He won that rep. He won that one-on-one. Oh, look, he got two people when he should have only been able to get one. It's just he does a lot of those little things. But I don't think outside of Rev that they're able to move a lot of people at this point. I just don't. And uh, and I think I, la- I was so happy for Sean Thomas Arlington to get into the end zone, too. They're varying their run game a little bit. They had some quarterback draws called with Dane in that game uh, that I think was a nice change of pace, emptying it out and giving it a different look. But, yeah, they... I don't expect them to have a ton of success with the run game because West Hills, I believe, is out with a knee injury as well from uh, a low block on a kick return or something that happened. He looked like he hobbled to the sideline pretty good. So uh, they're going to have to find uh, new bodies and try to get Sean Thomas Arlington as much work as possible because he's a really productive player. But I don't think that they're going to rely on the run much in these Labor Day games. I think this is going to be almost exclusively about Dane Evans going out there and you know throwing it 40 times and seeing if they can get a victory against Toronto that way. But again, if you're going to do that, you sure as hell better protect. Because if you're going to give your offensive line 40 pass protection snaps in a game and you're only going to protect effectively on 30 of them, 
you're asking for a fumble and two interceptions. And if you're losing the turnover battle, as always in the CFL, you're losing the game. Yeah, for sure. And dare you make a prediction on this one? We're, we're, <laughs> we're pretty rough on this so far on the scouting report. We've been all over the map. We're actually usually pretty good at getting the score, but we usually get the the winning team wrong. That seems to be how it goes here. So well, there's, there's no shame in that. Uh, I, you know what? I, I have a feeling that Toronto is a different group than they've been the last couple of years. Usually it's that Hamilton energy and, you know, let's, let's be real about this. Simone Lawrence and Brandon Revenberg, Jeremiah Masoli. I mean, maybe Mike Daly outside of that, who are the real core tie cats? You know, Ted LaRon is another one I can name, but the group that really knows what Labor Day is about and have been through the battles of CFL Labor Day classics it's a little thin on Hamilton compared to where it's been the last couple of years, not even comparatively to the Argos or other teams, but just they don't have that same feel of this is the group. I know what they're about. I know how they'll respond in this situation. There's a lot of names that we don't know that are playing for the Ticats right now. When Wes Hills gets some carries in that game in Montreal, I'm going, who? Google 34, Hamilton Tiger Cats. Uh, just because you're trying to understand, okay, who are these people and what are they about and what's the culture that they're trying to create always going to set the culture for the, the entire organization but the players have to take it upon themselves to say here's our identity here's what we want to be about and then bring it to life and i think you've seen a bunch of different identities through the first couple of weeks for hamilton and they don't really know who they are yet and usually in a, in a non-covid affected season you get to labor day and your identity has been figured out because you've been 10 11 games into the season they're three games in. <laughs> they haven't had a chance to figure it out as of yet. The first month of the CFL season, even with preseason games, is usually a feeling out process. But to go into this game with this emotion and your record where it is, I just think that Toronto, based on what I saw in week three, should be able to get the victory. Do I think it's crazy high scoring? Not really. I, I think it falls along to the trend we've seen so far this year. I would say like a maybe a 26-18 type final um, somewhere in that wheelhouse if I were to to guess it. And by the way, I love doing score predictions because when you're covering the CFL, you can just pick two random numbers and anything <laughs> is possible, uh, which I always love when you would like watch the Schwami on Sunday NFL count. Or Who's the Schwami got? The Bills, 27-14. Who's he got in the next one? The Ravens and the Steelers. It's going to be a 30-24 final. Like he's just going touchdown, 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 field goal, touchdown, field goal, touchdown. I love with our game, we can be like, you know what? 53 to 47. They'll get there. They'll figure it out. <laughs> well, I'm going to go uh, I'm going to go more traditional uh, Schwami style. I I am th- thinking 24-21 with an Argos victory. Uh, but it makes nice. me a little nervous that uh, both of us seem to be on the Argos for this week that may not bode well for the double blue. Well, Based on my picks on CFL.ca to start the year, I would agree with you, but I am I, thankfully because now I'm doing some TV work, I asked them, "Hey, I don't really want to pick games anymore. First of all, I'm kind of bad at this. Second of all, I don't think it should be a thing that broadcasters are doing when they're broadcasting the game. So I said that to uh, Chris O'Leary and the editorial staff, and they're like, yeah, you don't have to do it anymore. And I'm like, oh, yes, I stop embarrassing myself with picks perfectly. And then you ask me to pick a game. So <laughs> I know. it's perfect. I dragged you back in. I can't, <laughs> you can't avoid it. It's the, you know, everyone wants to, everyone wants a prediction at the end of the day. So it's, it's, true. it's tough to avoid, but at least you don't have to post a prediction for every single game, I guess, on the website. So you can avoid that uh, embarrassment. Yes, I agree. All the, uh, the social media managers from CFL teams, let me just say this. There's easier, smarter content out there 
than criticizing the people who write articles on CFL.ca. Okay. We don't have to go to the lowest common denominator. Everybody love everybody. ELE. Okay. A little semi-pro action for you. And if we get things wrong, it's okay. When you get things wrong on your accounts, we don't jump on you. Just let it be, baby. It's okay. Marshall, I said I'd take 10 minutes of your time and we've done a whole afternoon drive show here. So <laughs> I, again, you've been really generous with your time. Thanks so much for, for joining me today. It's been awesome. Yes, Ben, congratulations on everything you're doing here with X's and Argos. I love following it. And uh, I will be relying exclusively on the podcast to educate myself while I'm prepping for those television games, okay? It may be a bit biased, but uh, I appreciate that nevertheless. This has been the <laughs> X's and Argos Scouting Report for Marshall Ferguson. My name is Ben Grant saying so long, and may all your pre-snap reads be good ones. I'll see ya. Fight the fun.